Hello and welcome to India Speak, the Center for Policy Research's podcast series. I'm Yamini Ayer and I'm joined today by my colleague Partho Mukhopadhyay, Senior Fellow at the Center for Policy Research. Partho has been very closely tracking India's vaccine policy, its evolution, its unfolding, its conflicts, its confusions, and also where we are today vis-a-vis our goals of achieving universal vaccination. Partho and I today will talk about the India's vaccine policy, uh, and uh, he will guide us through the many bottlenecks, uh, the many confusions, the many conflicts, and some of the successes that we have encountered since January when India embarked on its COVID-19 vaccinations rollout. Partho, very warm welcome to you on India Speak. Good evening, Yamini. Partho, let's start uh, by you just walking us through what's happened uh, over the last few months. Uh, India launched uh, its vaccination strategy in early January, around January 16th, when uh, things looked very different. Uh, It seemed that COVID was in retreat. Uh, India was Uh, both uh, as the world's largest manufacturer of vaccines, had adequate supply of uh, AstraZeneca's Covishield, uh, and also had its very own uh, homegrown vaccine in the form of Bharat Biotech. Uh, It looked like this was something that we had completely in control. And we began, uh, like many other countries, uh, by focusing first on healthcare workers who obviously had uh, the most exposure and therefore were at maximum risk. Uh, And uh, if I'm not wrong, by March, we had expanded uh, and opened out our vaccination policy to uh, those populations who are most at risk, so 60 plus. Uh, And then we got to 45 plus with comorbidities. And suddenly in April, just as uh, the second surge was hitting us, it also seemed like uh, a policy that at least on the surface appeared to be in control was beginning to unravel. Um, And in the midst of the surge, uh, we began to, uh, as ordinary citizens, we became spectators to what seemed to be a full-on national vaccination war. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about how the policy was evolved uh, and what happened uh, and why is it that we ended up in a place of much confusion in April when perhaps we needed the vaccines most? Uh, war might be a little uh, overdramatic. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so uh, let's begin at the very beginning. Um, the expectation was exactly as you said, uh, given the fact that uh, we had large manufacturing capabilities, uh, given the fact that uh, uh, Serum Institute, our largest manufacturer, had uh, essentially been licensed by uh, AstraZeneca, uh, who was um, for the AstraZeneca Oxford uh, vaccine. Uh, and by uh, December, uh, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine had been approved uh, by a number of international regulators. Uh, usually uh, across the world, uh, a number of countries uh, invested heavily in their vaccine manufacturing capacity uh, and largely uh, by uh, offering contingent contracts, which basically meant that if your vaccine uh, passes the regulatory test, 
we will purchase X hundred million of your vaccines. Um, that was true for uh, UK, uh, the US, a uh, little less true for uh, the EU. Um, and uh, given the kind of capacity uh, that India had, everybody had assumed uh, that it was also true for India. India had actually uh, made these advanced commitments. And in fact, the Serum Institute CEO at various points of time over 2020 essentially said that, yes, you know, I'm happy to supply everywhere else, but half my production is going to be for India. Uh, which meant, given his capacity, that, uh, you know, people expected maybe three quarters of a billion to a billion doses for uh, India coming out of Serum itself. And then uh, uh, we had made very early sort of uh, noises about Novavax and things like that. So Duke University, which was tracking these kinds of purchases, basically thought that India had all of these things tightly sewn up. We didn't know exactly what was going on, except that there were some uh, small murmurings from the uh, Serum Institute CEO about, you know, Contracts have not really been signed fully yet, uh, etc. But uh, people didn't pay too much attention to that because they assumed that you know those were just bureaucratic delays and more or less the uh, gentlemen's agreements had all been put together. When we started out in uh, early January, uh, there was uh, another sort of um, curveball that was thrown into the system, which was uh, the regulatory approval process, uh, along with AstraZeneca. Uh, our domestic uh, vaccine, a lot of the work had been done by the National Institute for Virology, uh, which was then sort of uh, given to Bharat Biotech. So ICMR's uh, NIV, uh, Bharat Biotech together were uh, making a vaccine. Uh, and uh, that vaccine was in the midst of its phase three trials. Uh, and uh, suddenly uh, in early January, it was announced that under emergency use authorizations, that vaccine too had been approved by uh, the government of India for actual administration. In uh, what was uh, very weird uh, terminology in clinical trial mode, which no one understood it was a completely novel uh, kind of description. Uh, and then, uh, so that was the first sort of uh, time when the vaccine uh, itself became politicized because uh, a number of people, uh, experts mostly, but also um, sort of political actors sensing uh, an opportunity to score a few political points, uh, essentially got into the act and said, how can you do this? This is, uh, you know, uh, you're just trying to get brownie points, etc., etc. Um, and that essentially right at the beginning of uh, the first phase, the vaccine approval phase, uh, and if you can sort of think of the vaccine story in three phases, the vaccine uh, approval phase, the vaccine procurement phase, and the vaccine vaccination or the vaccine distribution phase. Right at the beginning of the vaccine approval phase, 
we saw, quote-unquote, conflict introduced into the system. That particular decision, in my own personal opinion, was very uh, unconventional. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, in the long term, uh, something that uh, most probably uh, will hurt us uh, going forward. Uh, and as we can see, there are still spillovers of the decision coming uh, even today. Uh, you have had uh, the EU uh, regulators, and I'm not holding a brief for them. They are a, a really uh, sort of stick in the mud kind of people. Uh, but uh, I think they are within their rights to sort of uh, say that, look, Covaxin, we haven't really had a full-fledged phase three trial result actually presented. And hence, uh, WHO hasn't approved it. Nobody has, uh, apart from the Indians, nobody is actually doing this. So uh, we won't allow it uh, as part of our own vaccine passport story. Uh, and uh, which essentially means that a very large number of Indians who have been vaccinated by Covaxin uh, essentially will have to wait longer before. Uh, I'm sure the vaccine itself, given whatever uh, results have been showing, will uh, eventually make it. Uh, but uh, there will obviously be delays coming through. Uh, on the plus side of that decision, uh, it essentially meant that you had um, maybe 10, 20 million vaccines beginning with uh, that sort of uh, were available to you uh, extra uh, during the first uh, initial months of uh, vaccination. Uh, so that was the procurement phase. Uh, people did wonder why we didn't start vaccinating earlier uh, and why our uh, span of time for vaccinating healthcare workers was so long. Uh, it essentially covered six weeks, um, all the way from mid-January to the end of February. Uh, and uh, if we had actually started vaccinating people in early February, uh, we might have been able to uh, deal with the uh, second wave uh, with a little bit more uh, capacity. Uh, we might have had fewer hospitalizations, uh, even if we had the same kind of infection, because we know now that the Delta variant, which was uh, implicated in the second wave, uh, uh, in terms of infections, uh, one dose of the vaccine doesn't really give you very much. Uh, but uh, in terms of hospitalizations, it might have brought us some subsequent. Do that as it may, we only decided to start extending that uh, vaccination story to the general population uh, in March. Uh, there is uh, some speculation as to whether we were not ready with the now famous COVID app um, at the beginning of February. Uh, and that again, just like the fact that we had not procured or placed orders for vaccines uh, in January, as we found out later. Uh, and it would also mean that we were not prepared with the COVID app, which we had the whole year to prepare for uh, at the beginning of February. Uh, so March is when vaccination actually started. India was uh, different uh, in the sense that it uh, had, at that point in time, a small price uh, that people were paying in the private sector, uh, 250 rupees. Uh, 
which, uh, and it was essentially, as I said, to extend the number of people who could actually be vaccinated, the network of people to vaccinate. Um, and uh, as you said, uh, until, uh, but while that vaccination started in early uh, March, the pandemic had also was slowly catching up with us. Uh, and uh, by early April, when we opened up uh, beyond the 60 plus to all 45 year olds, uh, we began we began with 60 and 45 with comorbidities. Uh, by early April, after a brief spurt in early April of vaccinations, it was clear that we were actually running out of vaccine. Uh, and with that point, it was also became clear that we had not placed advance orders, that we did not have sufficient vaccines in stock. There wasn't like hundreds of millions of vaccines in warehouses that were ready to be rolled out. And somewhere around that time uh, is that when the central government changed tact, uh, states had been basically clamoring, and I think uh, either they did not realize what they were asking for, uh, or they were trying to score political points. Uh, either way, they must share part of the blame, uh, because either of ignorance or uh, essential uh, uh, trying to sort of uh, act too smart. Uh, and uh, the center had really messed up by not uh, placing advance order for vaccines. They did not have the supply. Uh, and they essentially handed this uh, entire vaccine procurement issue the first time any federal country had done it to the states uh, and said, okay, you boys go ahead and buy your own vaccines. We will give you a certain amount of vaccines uh, for your 45 plus. Uh, half the local vaccine capacity was made available for states to purchase and states could go ahead and contract from others. Partho, let me stop you there just for one uh, important clarification. Uh, so in terms of how the so uh, how the center state story was uh, framed before the change in the policy it was a center that was procuring and then distributing it to states uh, for the 45 plus category what was the role uh, of the private sector because there was always uh, free vaccines that were coming from the government, uh, and then there was a private supply as well. So if you could just walk us through what that structure was. So um, like in every other country, the uh, central government was procuring vaccines from uh, essentially from our two domestic manufacturers, uh, Bharat Biotech and Covishield. And uh, then they were distributing it uh, according to, as I said later, uh, basis of population, infection, and use uh, to the various states. Uh, the private sector was essentially a delivery partner. They got uh, 100 rupees for every vaccine that was delivered through them. That's where uh, today, in some sense, uh, had an incentive to maximize the amount of distribution that they had. Uh, but in terms of the pricing, they got it at the same price uh, that the center was actually uh, procured. Right? The center was procuring it at 150 rupees uh, a dose. And this was true for both for vaccine and for uh, Covishield. Uh, initially, they started with 200. 
and then very soon after they dropped to 150 again an issue that i think is uh, problematic because uh, i think uh, there there's sometimes when you might want to leave a little money on the table because uh, in this case uh, that would have been money that would be used for expansion of facilities capacities etc uh, as it is uh, both covishield and covaxin i think were uh, being given very thin margins if there were any margins at all and consequently what you had was but essentially that same price was passed through into the private sector uh so the initial price differential between the private and the uh, public was 250 rupees so so one more question on this because uh if one goes back to the headlines of early april uh there was a lot of uh discussion in the public domain and demand uh i think both from citizens and to a degree from states perhaps responding to citizens uh that uh, the 45 plus was too limiting and it was time to give a little bit more flexibility and to open up uh vaccinations to a larger cohort of people um but uh in 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 the first policy that was rolled out uh through january to march it was a central government deciding who to vaccinate and leaving it to states to actually do it um it, and and uh it was this sort of uh the the push to shift uh who gets vaccinated uh was also part of that discourse um and i just want you to reflect a little bit about how we've thought about this question because you have a really important piece uh today as we record uh that's out in the hindustan times arguing that perhaps we are putting lives of the vulnerable to risk uh, by not uh, uh, ensuring that we are vaccinating all those who are vulnerable uh, and distributing vaccines across a far wider range of uh, of eligible uh, adults yes so um the two basic uh, issues at that point in time uh, we were vaccinating roughly about 3 million people a day states had the power to do a lot more uh as was very recently demonstrated when we did about 9 million uh, on the 21st of june i do not think that the states realized the extent of the supply shock uh when they started making that particular uh demand uh and if they did uh, it might have been a way to show up the center um and uh consequently uh, they made the claim that they would like more flexibility within the vaccine distribution uh, parameters and and some of that flexibility as is now being shown in certain states like you know providing vaccination to uh, people below 45 who are in uh, sort of uh, specific occupations which might be more at risk etc i think uh, would have been useful flexibility provide but what the center did was basically take the whole can of worms and add it over uh so the states uh, got what they asked for and much more uh, and as i had written at the time i basically said the states went from getting uh, all the vaccine supply apart from the little bit that went to the private sector for free uh, to getting half the vaccine supply uh, rather for free and the remaining and quarter of it for about twice the price that the center was uh paying earlier actually much more than uh what uh, 
it went from three to about twice the price. So they had a reduction in quantity and an increase in costs uh, from what they had earlier, uh, which was a really high price to pay for the flexibility of being able to vaccinate the Uh, and the second story is, I think there has been and there continues to be uh, this idea that somehow the 18 to 44 are the young guys who are moving around and therefore more likely to get infected and therefore we should go ahead and vaccinate them. Uh, what we don't realize is A, there are many more of them. Uh, so it takes a lot more vaccine to get past any reasonable amount to them. Uh, second, uh, the issue is also that one dose of a vaccine does not really provide, as we know now, with much more certainty, um, and especially against the Delta variant, actually provides very little protection against infection. Uh, so the same 18 to 44, unless uh, they are living uh, with younger people in small nuclear families, uh, which is not the case in most of India, essentially end up infecting. Uh, older people, because the vaccine is actually not protecting them from infection uh, uh, to the extent that you think it is. Uh, so there are a lot of 18 to 44s hanging around, plus there is uh, even the ones who are vaccinated are not really uh, doing this sort of, the only other country which has tried doing this was Indonesia. Every other country has gone very strictly by the age criteria, and there's a reason for that. We, the government of India has not released age-specific fatality figures for a very long time. Uh, but when it did release those figures, uh, and there is even uh, today a small study that's come out looking at the age-specific fatality figures, you'll see that the fatality figures for the older age groups are multiple times that of the younger age groups. Uh, so if an older person gets sick, he or she is much more likely to be hospitalized and then die uh, as compared to if a younger person gets sick. Every reasonable country around the world first ended up protecting the older people and then expanded the vaccination to the younger people. UK, which has been sort of touted as this big you know, vaccination success, etc., even today, is only opening up to the third. So, so, in, uh, so that was the big uh, story. And the second thing that happened after that, uh, Yamini, is once it became uh, 18 to 44 story, and then later on, uh, the supply issues, etc., that we can talk about. But fundamentally, uh, it then became a numbers game. Uh, I vaccinated more than you kind of story. Uh, and uh, finding uh, the 60 plus or about 10% of our population, right? And uh, they're across there in the rural areas and in the urban areas. So it, it is a relatively small group. So you have to spend resources and effort to try and expand them beyond the first group which come to your vaccination centers. And... Uh, by now, about half of them have shown up to our vaccination. The remaining half, we would actually have to spend serious effort to go out and find them and not so much reach out to them, not so much find them, we sort of know where they are, but 
uh, reach out to them and uh, vaccinate them. Uh, but instead of doing that, the states are picking the much easier, low-hanging fruit of vaccinating the 18 to 44 because there are lots of them out there and they're showing up in roads. And therefore, they can say I've vaccinated 500,000 people. When in terms of actually preventing deaths from the pandemic, God forbid if a third wave should happen, it's really not particularly useful. So that's the current tension between, quote-unquote, showing off, which seems to be the current fashion, not only here, but everywhere else, uh, and actually doing what is the important thing and the sensible thing to do to reduce the possible fatalities in the event of any further waves of infection that will be there. So in a sense, the running thread uh, from uh, actually from day one uh, in uh, our vaccination policy has been uh, a de-linking in some ways between uh, who and how we choose to vaccinate versus the dynamics of the disease and the risk profile of the disease uh, in itself. Um, and it seems as the rollout of the policy itself unfolded. It was also uh, shaped a lot by the tensions between uh, center state uh, dynamics, uh, which resulted in the kinds of policy uh, uh, decisions that were taken, especially in early April, uh, and some of which, of course, were reversed uh, in June. Um, but there was another actor in all of this, Partho, the Supreme Court. So uh, they, they seem to have played some role in uh, both holding uh, uh, the center and state accountable for the kinds of choices they made. Um, how do you view uh, the nature of that intervention and what did it do, uh, particularly in the difficult months of April and May, uh, to contribute to the reversal of policy that we saw in early June? So, uh, before that, there was another uh, thing that happened. Uh, once they sort of um, handed over the uh, vaccination to the uh, states, uh, and the private sector, because the private sector suddenly got a lot of vaccines, uh, which it didn't have access to before. Uh, and they had it for uh, uh, essentially, um, at least in the initial part, at a relatively high price. It was about 1,400 rupees, uh, 1,200 rupees uh, announced for Covaxin and 600 rupees announced for Covishield. Uh, that uh, Covishield price was about four times the price that would selling it to the central government at and Covishield was almost 10 times eight times the price that they were selling it to the central government at, right? uh, so one was the explicit statement in the uh, by the minister uh, that those who have the money uh, can go ahead and get themselves vaccinated first if I can quote uh, Minister Harshwardhan those who can afford to get them at the private and corporate sector rates shall go ahead. And then uh, the other thing that happened, facing a situation when there was a huge upsurge in demand because you've opened up uh, the demand side to the 18 to 44. And you have almost very little supply, maybe 75 uh, million vaccines a month, maybe less. Uh, you had vaccinated about 90 million people in April. Uh, you basically decided 
to rely upon uh, studies in the early part of the AstraZeneca uh, trial experience um, and rely upon the experience of England to uh, extend the gap between those uh, and therefore what was earlier a four to six week and a six to eight week kind of dosing gap between the first and the second doses of Covishield. A Covaxin was always about four weeks and has remained so. Uh, suddenly became 12 to 16 weeks in the middle of May. We again know now uh, based on uh, results that have come out post that particular decision. Uh, essentially, the Delta variant without two doses, it's very difficult to resist. England, as a result, has actually reduced that gap for the older citizens. We have done nothing of that sort. Uh, so, in our, in my own reading of the policy, there is way too much importance to the optics uh, of how much vaccination is actually happening, like a headline number, uh, rather than a considered understanding of whether or not the vaccines are going to the right people in the right places. Uh, and uh, that's the other issue that one could also talk about, which is uh, something we're written about early on, arguing that we needed to prioritize uh, certain areas where the pandemic has been very strong uh, before. Um, and uh, But interestingly enough, that particular spatial prioritization, to some extent, uh, in a very rough extent, uh, has happened because the pandemic uh, essentially hit a lot of the big urban centers uh, and hit them repeatedly, both during the first wave and during the second wave. And the focus on the private sector uh, meant that uh, the a, a lot of these private sites were concentrated in uh, these large urban centers. In fact, roughly about two out of three private sites are in let's say, the top 15 sort of urban uh, districts of this country. Uh, and consequently, what you have is a situation where there's been an increased vaccination in these areas, which is good. Uh, there's also, unfortunately, a lot of that increased vaccination has been through the private sector over May and most of June, uh, which essentially meant only the relatively richer among us who are willing to pay that private sector price got themselves vaccinated. Uh, the third thing that we might want to just touch a little bit about is when the private sector opens up, uh, and this is something we don't really know, we can only infer from what we have seen on the ground, the gender ratio seems to change. A lot more men seem to get vaccinated in these during the months when the private story was happening. Uh, than women. And it's quite possible that people will say, okay, I have to go out, I have to be the earning member of the family, I'm more at risk, so I'll go and get myself this vaccination. Uh, you can wait until such and such time that the vaccines are available in the public sector. Uh, I don't know whether that is actually the case. I'm just speculating at this time. Uh, but uh, 
the data is consistent with that kind of a phenomena actually work. So uh, there are a number of these inequities that sort of come about as a result of a number of decisions that have been taken right from the beginning, which is not ordering enough vaccines, because then we wouldn't be in this mess that we are in right now and we're having to choose. China is vaccinating 20 million a day. Uh, and that's because they had the foresight to get those vaccines produced. We had the same capacity. We have more vaccine production capacity than China. We are not vaccinating 20 million. We have today a minister who is essentially making it sound important that he has assured 120 million vaccines for the month of July to be supplied to the states. It's less than 4 million a day. That's where the problem began in my mind. Right? And then various levels, the COVID app, the delay in the implementation of the COVID app, the design of the COVID app, the handover to the states, the premature expansion to 18 to 44, the hurried uh, expansion of the dose schedule so that the second doses got really delayed, the large supply to the private sector, 25% of total production, which they can't actually use. All of these have added up to create a number of inequities in our outcomes which we are only now beginning to slowly recognize and hopefully remedy bit by bit. The question then becomes, uh, how do you get this kind of benefit? Over the last two to three months, the only way we have managed to get some visibility into what the decisions behind vaccination policy and the rationale of different decisions is, is through the affidavits that have been submitted by the center to the Supreme Court and some of the affidavits submitted by some states, uh, again, as part of this uh, case, which has been taken up suo moto by the Supreme Court. So two major affidavits, one in May and one in June, sort of anchor in some sense and try to rationalize what the policy of the center is. For reasons I've written elsewhere, I don't think many of them are defensible, but that is not the point. The point is that the conversation which should have been happening between the center and the states in the conference room, or nowadays actually in the Zoom room, is now taking place only in the courtroom. It's only under the aegis of the court that different actors are being forced to make explicit the rationale that underlies their decisions. This kind of reasoning behind their decision-making is something that every citizen should expect as a norm from every government. That is something that we as citizens of India have not received in the last few months regarding vaccination. So it's only thankfully because of our courts 
that we have some degree of transparency. But this does not have to be the case. Well, there's another inequity uh, that uh, you haven't uh, spoken about, but I know you've written about, which is uh, the question of the, the possibility or potential of digital inequity uh, with the COVID app being the central uh, uh, architecture through which uh, vaccinations uh, are being conducted. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that's again been something that's been at the heart of a lot of the public debate. I can see that there is some need to have an app that tracks what vaccine you have got, have you, when did you get that vaccine, to make sure your spacing is right and you get the right vaccine, even though nowadays you're experimenting with uh, mixed vaccines and so on. But at that point in time, and even now, the default mode is the same vaccine for you. Um, so unlike a single vaccine situation, the moment you had two doses, uh, it was important that you sort of have some kind of mechanism for tracking this. And I mm -hmm. think the phone app in that sense uh, was a relatively positive development. Mm -hmm. The reason I find that it must have been a hurried development and therefore I am tempted to believe those who say that we didn't start vaccination in February because we were still fine tuning the COVID app. Uh, is because even when it was released, the one thing you would have expected from the app was multilingual capability. Forget regional languages. You would expect it to at least have Hindi. You ruled out an app across India that was only in English. Right? So uh, to me, that's just a smoking gun which says you were releasing this in a real heart. Uh, that is the first level of digital inequity that's automatically built in because it's only a small proportion of India who can then use that app effectively. The good thing that they realized at that point in time was uh, they allowed a lot of walk-in vaccinations. So you didn't have to register on the app necessarily. You could go up to a vaccination center and somebody there would actually register you on it. Um, which, of course, meant that the people who were manning those registration centers had to be comfortable with both digital engagement as well as the language, the English language. Uh, and I'm not so sure that as you expand to 50,000, 60,000, that's all we have got so far. But, you know, in the case of polio, etc., we're well above 100,000 centers operating. Uh, one of the reasons perhaps we can't really expand to that is because we may not have the capacity to have that kind of manpower uh, or um, human resources in place uh, to do that kind of stuff. Uh, so um, your only escape from the digital divide of Cohen was the walk-in facility, uh, which allowed you to avoid the engaging with the app personally. And the app would have then been engaged with somebody else. Uh, the second thing that it did uh, sort of ends up doing in terms of the uh, digital divide is obviously it's an app. You need to be able to log into it. You need to be able to send data, move out, etc. So you need a certain degree of either a fancy phone and, a, and essentially network that can you can actually access. 
I have trouble accessing network in the middle of Kolkata. Mm. Uh, so you're realizing that having a good enough phone to be able to access the network and having access to the network automatically meant that it privileged a certain class of people and it privileged certain locations of, uh, where people were. So the digital divide therefore worked economically, linguistically, and spatially. And the only recourse you had to that was you could walk to your vaccination or rather go to your vaccination. The, that recourse, again, differed a lot as to whether you were in a big town, which had a lot of vaccination centers, or you were in the rural areas where vaccination centers were few and far between. So even those who argue that the walk-in was a possible way of essentially uh, going around the digital inequity, forget that the ability, the distance to a vaccination center differs quite significantly across the country. These are not necessarily problems of the quote-unquote COVID app, apart from the linguistic issue, which is actually an issue of design of the app itself. Uh, the rest of it, the ease of access to a vaccination, which the government now says in the new epidemic, that we can have near-to-home vaccination centers. You could have done this much, much earlier. The reason you didn't do it is because you, didn't, you knew you didn't have the vaccines to be able to back it up. You, you were forced to limit your sites and you were forced to exclude people because if you actually expanded your sites, you would not have the vaccines to vaccinate the people who would have shown up at the center. So all of this, the pace at which you rolled out was dictated by the supply of vaccines that you had and is still being dictated by the supply of vaccines that we have. That's the, the only saving grace in this, and I'm not sure whether that really is true anymore. Uh, I thought something like this maybe in April. I'm no, now I'm not very sure whether that is true at all, given what we know about death rates across the country. Uh, is I used to think that it's okay if the vaccines were first more concentrated in the urban areas, uh, because that's where the pandemic was concentrated. Now, since we have seen the kind of uh, excess death numbers that have been coming out in different states, one is not clear how much it has actually spread to rural areas, and consequently, how much the vaccine might also be needed in those areas. Right? That's one of the things that we don't know. And therefore, uh, my natural sort of, uh, okay, uh, the right thing is happening for the wrong reasons. That we're focusing on the more risky sites, but for the wrong reasons, because they have more uh, sites or they have more private sector, etc. Uh, even that particular possibility, I might have been wrong. On that, right? So there isn't really very much positive I can see out of the outcomes as you can see. Uh, I'm not in a uh, particularly optimistic uh, 
But let me let me push you uh, uh, to, to give us a, a slightly more optimistic prognosis for going forward in the sense that we've talked about the fact that the rollout so far has largely been about a numbers game and about optics rather than about mapping the rollout to the, the, the uh, transmission dynamics. We've talked about the inequities that that has uh, built into this. Uh, we've also talked about both in terms of uh, the the so, so, uh, who gets access to the vaccine as a consequence of the policy choices that have been made, as well as the role of digital in potentially exacerbating some of this, even though uh, it has uh, a very crucial role to play uh, in the vaccine vaccination policy. Um, we've also talked a little bit about the supply issues and the role of the private sector. Uh, each of these have collectively uh, come together in to create the bungle that we uh, we had and the place where we are in today. Um, but a few things, one of the um, pieces of research that uh, you and colleagues at CPR have been doing, and you've referred to this in the course of our conversation as well, is that we do see a certain kind of spatial concentration of COVID. Uh, and in, in a recent piece, uh, you've talked about permanently at risk districts where about 145 districts that accounted for about 75 percent of the cases in the first wave, uh, the same districts accounted for up to 80 percent of the cases during the second wave. Uh, of these, 45 districts accounted for 50 percent of the cases during the first surge and even more in the initial days of the second. So from this analysis, we do get a sense that uh, there is a very clear spatial element to, uh, to COVID. Uh, and perhaps one could build on some of this to have a vaccination strategy where uh, we can ensure that the most risky areas, combined, of course, with the most risky people, uh, get vaccinated first. Could you talk a little bit about what are the kinds of policy choices we need to be making uh, in order to get past the challenges we are confronting today? So, uh, Yamani, as I said, uh, first, yes, uh, that is definitely the case. But again, that analysis is built upon... Uh, recorded and reported numbers uh, and the excess deaths um, reports that are coming out uh, indicate that those numbers may or may not reflect what the actual situation was uh, on the ground. Right? That's, a, that's one, one caveat uh, that I would like to say. But more importantly, I think the spatial uh, story is perhaps uh, a next level story uh, because what we have done so far the choice that we made is the choice to vaccinate the younger 18 to 44 age group. If we had not made that choice, by now we would have been able to give a first dose to every Indian above the age of 60. And obviously not every Indian would have taken that vaccination. So we would actually have a lot left over and which would have gone to the other, uh, especially the 45 to 59, etc. But the core issue is, it is that choice, the choice of age that we made, which has forced us to try and ask, should we be vaccinating in one district or should we be vaccinating in the other? If we had followed the age gradient properly, 
we would not have to make this special choice we could have vaccinated everyone everywhere and in fact some states like rajasthan and tripura and sikkim uh jnk to some extent have actually done it uh they have vaccinated almost everybody above 60 so it is not something that cannot be done you do have examples within indian states which showed that it could be done this was also a decision of the state so it is not entirely something that one pins on the center this is also a dynamic of the state and this is why i said if you get too caught up with the optics of showing off how many people you have vaccinated you forget that today if i was to figure out who has done the best in terms of vaccination i would any day pick rajasthan over its neighbor madhya pradesh even though madhya pradesh has these you know we vaccinated 1.6 million a day kind of story right so that's the to the policy choice that we definitely need to focus on is did we have we finished vaccinating the vulnerable that's the first thing that we need to get our the the second story about what we are doing and i think hopefully we're beginning to come around that particular story and there's a uh, whole story about uh the responsibility that the center is taking for payment which i uh will briefly come comment upon later but the issue is the private sector today is allotted 25% of the vaccine production the simple fact is it cannot use it there are not when there is a public supply for free that is in place and that is now finally beginning to look as if the vaccines might be available maybe at the slow pace of 4 million a month but still much better than 1 and a half million a day kind of story uh or rather 4 million a day versus 1 and a half million a day uh the number of people who will show up to pay 1400 rupees or 600 rupees or 750 rupees to get vaccinated is dropping you cannot force people to go and take private vaccinations 25% of india will not pay for vaccines the center will realize that it has already realized that because they're now talking about vaccine procurement through the covin portal etc etc and when they find out that the covin portal is only ordering 5% of the vaccines question is what will they do with the remaining 20 right so there i am expecting sense will prevail that the market will demonstrate very sharply to the center that 25% of the vaccines cannot be sold to the private sector why is that a problem for the center it is a problem for the center because as the center has acknowledged in its affidavit to the supreme court the 25% to the private sector is a cross subsidization policy the 25% of the private sector is to allow the vaccine manufacturing companies to make more money by selling a certain number of vaccines at high prices because the center will not give them more than 150 rupees a vaccine for it to go forward right 
so if the vaccine manufacturers now come back and say look your 20 at your 25% co vaccine says i was expecting to make more than 400 rupees per dose on average after combining the private and the public supply and now since the public is uh, private is only picking up 5% of my stock i'm only making 200 rupees a dose how am i going to make up the difference that is the question that the center will then be asked as of now it does not want to acknowledge that there is a question out there and it definitely doesn't have the answer for it it's in that context that the pricing policy and the production policy how much do you really need to pay for the vaccine so that the vaccine manufacturers can actually uh, sort of recover not only their costs but also quickly recover the kind of investments they have had to make to expand capacity is it 100 is that 150 rupees enough or do you really need to pay them 200 rupees which is what you have been paying them before or do they actually need to get 400 rupees which is what the weighted average price for covaxin is this is a question that we don't know the answer to yet i'm sure there is a back and forth going on between the government and the vaccine manufacturers on this the reason why this is important is because this has implications for the production of vaccines going forward for how rapidly they can expand can they actually meet the kind of numbers that have been laid out in the supreme court affidavit uh and if they are unable to do that then what happens two big policy positions therefore uh, yamani to uh, sort of sum up is one on the age vaccination and as i argue in my piece today in the sun times you can actually get back on track as soon as the end of july if you chose to prioritize the 60 plus age group and the second is to get your head around exactly how much money do the vaccine manufacturers need including a reasonable profit in order to be able to meet their supply commitments going forward and if you are depending on the 25% private supply to provide them that money that is a serious mistake so our policies uh the government has its job cut out for itself we need to focus on ensuring that we vaccinate uh, the vulnerable at speed it's possible we need to address the critical issue of pricing uh, in order to unblock supply uh, and ensure that the private sector uh, is able to recover its costs at a reasonable profit uh, and at the same time that 25% uh, hold up uh, will open up the possibility of more vaccines into the public system which is uh, which will ensure that some of the inequities that you talked about also uh, will eventually get addressed uh, the the pathway is clear uh, just one last question to you partho because it's been such a central three theme through the conversation 
the center state dynamic. Uh, if we do these things, do you think that the center state story has resolved itself or will resolve itself? Or uh, are there some other things that need to be thought through in the policy landscape to avoid the kinds of tensions and multiple pulls and pressures that created some of the bungling uh, in the first place? So, uh, Yamini, the first thing the center state dynamic needs is a bit of honesty. Sure. Uh, and that honesty uh, at both sides. For example, today, uh, let me talk about how inconsistent the uh, central government is, for example. Uh, today, the uh, minister, uh, the health minister made the point uh, that uh, we have told the states that you're going to get 120 million doses in July. Uh, they should plan. Uh, and you know what is this? You know reports we have been hearing about you know states stopping vaccination here, vaccination there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Uh, and he said, you know, we have vaccinated 115 million people in uh, June, uh, and uh, so you know this whole idea about uh, vaccinating uh, X Y Z amount in uh, so 120 million in July should be fine. Uh, there is a small problem with that. Uh, you have indeed vaccinated 115 million or so in June, uh, but 55 million of them were in the last 10 days of June. So when you said, I'm going to give you 120 million, uh, are you going to give them to me on a 4 million a day basis? Or are you suddenly going to give me nothing in the beginning and give me a lot at the end. So that's the first thing that the center is not clear about. The monthly supply is not important. What is important for states to plan vaccination is a predictable daily supply and a certain amount of stock that they're allowed to hold. Second, how much vaccine is actually going to be available? In one part of the affidavit, the center clearly states that by the end of July, they would have 51.6 crores. That's 516 million vaccines available. At the end of June, which is yesterday, they basically vaccinated, uh, used about 335 million vaccines. The difference between them is 180 million. You're basically saying there's 120 million plus whatever is available for the private sector. But if I were to reconcile these two numbers, 180 million and 120 million to the private sector, uh, to the public sector, by adding in 60 million to the private sector, which the private sector will never be able to deliver, uh, it essentially means that the private sector is getting one third the number of vaccines. 60 million out of 180 million instead of 25%. So that sums, even within the center's own two submissions to the Supreme Court, don't add up. This is not difficult to add up. How much vaccine you're going to get a month from now is determined largely by processes that you have started in the middle of June, that's, you know, it's a production process. You might get less, you might get more. It is a little bit like planting uh, a crop 
but in principle you do sort of know how much you can expect to get and this kind of transparency which says that serum institute bharat biotech sputnik whoever else is producing and the real story that i'm missing completely here is what is happening to the single dose johnson and johnson or janssen vaccine which was yeah. supposed to be produced by bio e which is now producing its own vaccine that these people as of now have started and over the course of the next over the course of july based on whatever processes they have started in may and june we are expecting to get this kind of production this is a visible predictable process with error right sharing this and saying based on this i'm hoping to be able to give you this kind of schedule every week because this is the kind of production i'm expecting if i get more everybody goes up prorata if i get less i'll reduce prorata or whatever you know depending on whichever rule you want to put forward that kind of conversation is not happening the conversation that is happening is essentially based on your mid january conversation when people were fighting about whether or not covaxin should have been given regulatory approval it's the same conflictual contentious tone that continues in the conversation between states and the center today this is just no way to run a federal vaccination program absolutely so i i think you've you've laid out uh, the the critical elements of what would make for a, a sensible vaccination policy going forward uh, vaccinating the vulnerable ensuring that those who are at risk get a vaccine fixing pricing so that the supply bottlenecks uh, and the inequities inbuilt into the current strategy are addressed uh, and most importantly be transparent about your supply uh, about how you're going uh, going to go about completing vaccination goals uh, and change the game from an optics game to one of essentially achieving the outcomes that you set out to which is to protect citizens uh, from the ravages of COVID- with 19 parso mukopadhyay thank you so much for walking us through the 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 weeds of our vaccination policy the mistakes we made uh, and the potential levers that we should be building into our policy going forward to address the problems we currently encounter thank you for listening For more on CPR's work on COVID-19, you can follow us on our Twitter handle at CPR_India, and visit our website at www.cprindia.org.